You have 24 Minutes, the podcast from 24-Hour Nation. My name is Randall White. A grassroots effort is underway in Denver to build support for the Mile High City's nighttime economy. What served as a catalyst for this course of action? We find out in my interview with Stefan Brackett, Executive Director of One Denver, as he tells us about the closing of a legendary jazz bar, El Chapultepec, or The Peck. During quarantine, El Chapultepec closed, and a local news publication called The Denverite said, well, there goes Denver. So The Peck, in so many different ways, kind of represented the best of the city. It was this dive jazz bar um, in downtown Denver that had been there for 87 years. And it was one of those places that everybody wanted to be. So if you went in during a, on a Friday night, you would see construction workers coming in off of ships. And you'd also see people in tuxedos and tails coming from the symphony orchestra. And they'd all be sitting there watching jazz, drinking cheap beer, right? And when you lose a place like that, you lose an essential piece of the city. And it's really easy. It's easy to let these places go. And then you don't realize what you've lost until it's gone. Um, Denver is not unique in as, like, as, as far as any other city where we are losing these identifying places for many different reasons. But a lot of it has to do with what I'll call short-sighted development. Because I don't think development in and of itself is is a bad thing. But um, if we can look at it with a more long view, we can start seeing, oh, if we just keep on trying to maximize the amount of profit per square foot, we actually end up with a city that isn't worth anything, that nobody wants to be in. So, Especially at night. Especially at night. So our work started with getting the lease for the PEC and just trying to kind of give it a little bit of a farewell, allowing folks in the city to come see some jazz there. And uh, we just tried to activate it because with anybody who knows anything about nighttime economy, activation is the, is the bottom line. And it's, it's the magic wand. That's not so magic. You just do dope things in your city for more people. And you start having a city that people want to be in. It is kind of frustrating that that has to be a new framing for people, but largely with what I'm trying to do here in Denver is I came from this city that had a lot of things for me to do. I was a child in downtown Denver that had places like the spot where I could do break dancing lessons for free and learn music production. It's not a coincidence. I became a professional musician when I had that kind of stuff available to me downtown. A lot of the stuff that I am looking to as far as not necessarily revitalizing, but making vibrant downtown Denver again is actually doing the stuff that we used to do. It's, it's not even a lot of new practices. It's just remembering all the things that we've done over even like the last 30 years, and we'll be in a much better place. Um, but that's when we were um, a little bit of a littler big town. And those kind of innovations were just kind of, I feel like more intuitive or whatever. And they were there and they're not now. What about the the situation though at the PEC mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. triggered you to focus your whole life experiences down this particular channel about activating the night? Well, it was something where it was a pain point for so many in the city, so, so many uh, people who've lived here. 
right. um, there's just thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who had been through that place in their time. And when they heard that it closed, because a lot of them didn't see the article, you could see them visibly wince. They're like, no, we've lost something precious. So for me, it felt like the perfect kind of entree to talk about, okay, well, this is what we have lost. What can we do for the future? Right. If this was kind of one of our few internationally renowned night spots and it is gone what does that say about our city if a place like the peck can no longer be here and a place like the peck was a place that was a welcoming gate to anybody who came to the city and we don't have that anymore and if we look at that as like um, a feature of habitat then what is that saying a city that has no welcoming paths well it has no future Right. And it was not just a place for customers, for patrons, but it was also a place for performers, correct? It was an essential part of our music ecosystem. So nice. I think that you could very easily talk to, because the Peck really had its heyday maybe 15 to 20 years ago. Sure. But if you talk to a lot of musicians, 40 years old or older, almost all of them had some sort of foundational experience at the Peck particularly the jazz scene, but even if it wasn't the jazz scene, we all came through there. We all, I mean, I was one of those teenagers. There was, there's thousands of us who would hang out outside of the door when we were too young to go in right. just to hear like that, the, like the heaviest of jazz cats play. Right. right. And then, oh, and then, and then, and then, and then during the jazz breaks, they would come out and you'd ask them questions about playing music. It was, and only now that I've been in, music ecosystems and policies and all these things where I realized what an essential part of the pipeline that was. And, and then I look at my city now and I'm like, oh, um, I don't think that we have a marketplace of ideas and techniques like we had right there at the door outside of the peck where thousands of us were put on game from really respected musicians, really respected international musicians who grew just by grew up here Right. or even musicians who were touring like everybody came through that place we're talking miles davis and then we we have like diane reeves who came from college, like mm. anybody ron miles like, and yeah so that that we saw that pipeline close and we don't have anything else like that particularly since the peck was a black and brown establishment okay and so like when i'm talking to high schoolers who are into jazz now i mean where would they go Right. Where is their opportunity to and, and have it not be this structured thing, but a thing where like your ambition has placed you there and you're there because you want to learn more. And you're there that maybe if you talk to one of these guys enough, they might let, let you sneak in, even though they're not 21 and you get to like <laughs> sit in on a set and maybe get torn to pieces and then come back the next week. Be better. That's the that, best, man. That's the best. Well, and so you mentioned this a little bit, but why should others in Denver care about this? Why, about this kind of milestone moment? To, what about losing the pack and it's this kind of incubator mm -hmm. for the cultural scene of Denver at night? How are you able to communicate to others in Denver that that, that, was, a, that was a big chair kicked out from under us? So this has been one of my issues as a music and arts advocate, period. Okay. The first thing that I have to understand is that they shouldn't care, right? They right. shouldn't care. They shouldn't know. There's no way that they would know. Okay. Um, the arts are part of like the culture and the water that we swim in. And the better it is, the more invisible it is. So I can't hold it against them for not knowing. 
And simultaneously then, how do I get them to value it? Because it just being around and it being free or available and all those things is not one of the ways that you build up a relationship where people value it. So even in our time, as I giving the, the city an opportunity to kind of say it's farewell, right? Um, there's a small amount of the population that's really taken advantage of it. And that's not something against them either. This is the work that we have to do. We have to be able to present the value proposition mm. to the masses about what it is and what the arts and all of these things are doing, what culture is. And we can't do it for culture's sake. We have to be able to code switch. If something is truly excellent, then you can find the data for it very easily and how it changes things. And so my argument is we weren't able to make the data case okay. in the last 20 years of El Chapultepec's existence. Okay. Yeah. So I'm also using that as a case study for what we need to do. What was the information that people didn't have? And then like, how do we start using that and saying every community in Denver needs to have a PEC or something like it. And then this is what it means towards safety, quality of life, dollars accessible by people activating it. And pretty much what does it mean to live at night? And if we're able to start setting up those data cases, it's not as though I feel like I need to justify my life, my scene, my people in this way. But if I don't have a way to translate it to folks who are not necessarily in communication with my community like I am, right. then I can't expect them to understand. So this is, this is when you talk code switch, this is how you're able to kind of translate the meaning of the peck to the person that maybe lives in a condo in the central business district, uh, a Cherry Creek homeowner or even somebody who's a family living in the Five Points neighborhood, you're able to kind of translate this to each of them in a way that's meaningful? Yes, and, and then you're also kind of demonstrating what they feel like their experience in the city could be. Uh -huh. One of the things that I love so much about nighttime economy is that it is a new framing for the shape of a city's future. And the reason why that's so important is that I've been a community activist for, for a while. And even if I'm talking with community members that I'm very much in line with, if I'm presenting some sort of idea, I might get this pushback. It's like, well, that's not how we've done it before. Right. Right. And, and that's, that, that makes perfect sense. Okay. Especially when you're dealing with folks who have been there for ages and all these things. Yeah. It probably isn't how they've done it before. But the beauty of night studies and nighttime economy is that they don't have an answer. And it's so new. It's, new. it's new. You're going to be able have to a, make a lot of things move. Yes. Forward. So what I can do, I can, I've talked with police officers. I have talked with bar owners and I'm like, how do you want to celebrate your time in the city at night? Police mm -hmm. officers, what do you want policing at night to look like? I can start with the aspirational, right? And from that data, I can actually just th that anecdotal data. I can already line it up and say like, hey, did you know what the teenagers said? They said the exact same thing that you all in the police department pretty much said. You have the same kind of priorities. Wild, right? How much different does that give a city or a country even in the midst of recovering from um, an international pandemic to be able to say like, oh, what do we want? And I, and I, I come for also from a teaching background. So I also mm -hmm. realize that just asking people what they want is not in and of itself a liberatory engagement. I would like to start with the grassroots surveying and take the next 18 months to build up familiarity with this word 
activations in the community and then building up a data case of what our nighttime economy is, what it isn't and what it can be. And then from there, then we'll be talking about how it can be uh, brought into the city. Um, Because otherwise I I do think that when I've looked at other opportunities uh, that cities have taken, a lot of the times the offices of nighttime economy usually resemble whatever the first cause was so is it excise and licensing licensing good point is it the um, office of economic development is it a pack of bar owners and taverns and things and um there's nothing against any of those things but i think for what i'm hoping for in this opportunity being a child of the city my entire life i feel like a more holistic hybrid is necessary to truly um in many ways fight for the soul of the city that hasn't yet existed what do you see as a measure of success, say, in five years? Mm, um, so in the first year, as I've told you, we are trying to get a whole bunch of data, but I don't believe in like waiting for data. I want things to, un- to reveal themselves and the information, especially it kind of shows how, how accurate our data is if it starts making different changes. But in five years time, I am very much hoping that we will be able to show um, kind of like opportunity maps. So we're like, okay, let's look at this block in downtown Denver. This is what they were dealing with as far as so the, the main thing we're looking like, I want, an, I want an activation index. I want an actual number and I want to be able to feed certain things into that. So public safety, dollars raised, quality of life, right? All of these things adding up and then being able to look at them like pretty much on a block to block basis, like before there was the office of nighttime economy and when the conversation started. And I need to see deltas in each of those situations. Now, given what I've understood about this, this is not just like some sort of optimistic scenario. If I'm dealing with a city that actually has no kind of plan, even a bad one is leaps and bounds ahead of where we were, because at least even on a bad plan, you can evaluate and iterate and see where you can go. So I need to be able to see the delta in, um, in like all of these things as like far as my activation matrix, right? Um, and with that, I'm going to be able to, if I keep on seeing the things improving, that will be easier to get more funding and support when we start saying, okay, this city, this bar, which has showed like a whole bunch of um, incidences of violence and other things, now that they've been retrained and all these, uh, like in in this formula, now that we've established a watermark of nightlife economy uh, actors in this area, da-da-da-da, what are we seeing here? How are these things changing? In five years, I want there to be like real standards and expectations around what people can expect at night. And so let's make that a little bit more concrete. I've already been talking with a bunch of bars and saying, all right, if we were able to um, bring in certain folks who can give training like um, Great Night Out or the White Ribbon Society, and we can say that these bars have like taken this time to make this population or this group safe, then we can also work with the statewide, um, with statewide and citywide um, hospitality and um, marketing departments like Visit Denver mm-hmm. and put those bars who have chosen to do such, such things on the website, mm-hmm. right? So there's no penalty necessarily if people aren't making the watermark, but if you are, then we're actually able to say like, this is what we expect in the city. 
and that the expectation of excellence and safety is like being brought about this way and that way. And so on the, on the front end, you have the private sector kind of like taking this on in this beautiful way. But on the back end, you also now have a unifying process by which this sector can identify its own standards of excellence, which do not exist right now. And a lot of this harkens back to me about classrooms. So I usually the students that I teach, they didn't care about getting a 4.0. All right. No. But if we if it was clearly established like, hey, I want you to develop yourself as a thinking person and I want to reintroduce you to the different ways in which you can be powerful. That creates a lifelong student. Right. And in the same way, I want the people participating in the nighttime of the city to be able to see all the levers and the power that they have available to them, and then also introduce them to ways in which to shape and use that power well. And so in five years, I'm, I want to see passive, I want to see like kind of passively all of these standards come into play. But truly at the end of five years, I want to see a different approach to the city even in the way that like things are being built and businesses are being approached. I, I am hoping that I can work with both developers and city agencies and all these things so that we can have more diversity established in our nightlife so we can see more activation. In five years time, like we have a massive amount of uh, vacant, um, vacant offices in downtown Denver. I would love to be able to coordinate with other nonprofit organizations and see like, okay, can we do a daycare? For night workers, perhaps. Exactly. Um, can we do, um, are there ways that we could do like a chess club or da 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 da? Like, and all of these things. And I don't think it would take a massive amount of funds because we already have the Downtown Denver Partnership working on these kinds of activations. But it's how do we bring, bring these things together? So, in five years, if I was truly being like my most optimistic self, I would love to see like a 25% increase in activation in Downtown Denver. Well, let's talk about you. Yeah, you were talking about it. You're a, te- you were a teacher. You're a Colorado mm-hmm. native, a Denver native. You're you're a member of the band Flowbots, which is what kind of all hip hop. I mean, um, I I would say Rage Against the Machine light. Okay, <laughs> got it. That's got one it. of the best that, ways that to nails put it. it. And for a couple, of, you've been the governor's uh, official music ambassador. You've been on Denver's uh, mayor's cultural commission. You're on an advisory group for the National Endowment for the Arts. You've created a music initiative for at-risk youth, and you find quote bliss in tricksterism, giant toppling, spitting hot fire, and claw hammer banjo. God love you for the claw hammer banjo part. You are a force. So of all those achievements what is the most important thing we need to know about you as we're watching you do your work in Denver? Okay. I I think um, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't name any of those things as achievements Okay, in many ways. I think that's like bare minimum curiosity and the advantage of a young person who was supported to um, foster that curiosity. And so for me, I, like many of us, was a teenager who had a lot of things not going for them. Um, I think one of the reasons I ended up becoming an educator, just like a lot of my friends, we came from situations that had a whole lot of gaps in the coverage of care for us. And it was only due to the efforts of some adults who gave a damn that we survived at all. And I, I do not say survive lightly. And with that... Um, the main thing for me is just like, how do I pay forward all of the love and attention and the resource that was put into me that made it happen? And 
I cannot leave this planet with there being less coverage for kids in this city than what I had. So that is the main impetus for everything that I am doing. And it just so happens that anything that is good for the kids is good for the city. If you have kids around, if you have families around, then even the most jaded of developers will realize they'll be able to flip their investment that much faster if they're around. So for me, it's it's the base principle. And the main reason I'm even caring about nighttime economy is like, what are what about the kids? What about the teenagers in particular? And if we can make this city a place where they can thrive and have a place, then it actually means we'll be having opening gates for everybody else. And yeah, I, I feel as though it will feel like an incredible celebration and achievement if within five to 10 years, we see that happen. I am speaking with Stefan Brackett. He's the executive director of what was called the 87 Foundation and is in the process of transitioning to one Denver, Office of Nighttime Economy, O-N-E, Denver. Uh, there'll be new links. I'll grab those and post them along with this podcast. But also, um, I've got the Flowbots links. If you need them, they're everywhere. They're uh, flowbots.com. They're the Flowbots on Facebook and on Twitter and Instagram, YouTube, TikTok. They're also on Spotify, Apple Music, SoundCloud, bands in town. They're all over the place. I'm going to ask you this one final question. Mm -hmm. What can others do to help you and one Denver as it continues its advocacy for the nighttime economy? So when we begin this year-long community surveying, um, there's going to be a lot of stuff going out from us asking people about either in person or informally or through like online surveys about what would they love to see and I would love participation in that. Um, we're also in the process of fundraising because we are not a city organization. We are a nonprofit, and we believe that that distance actually gives us the opportunity to get to a grassroots support, which is essential if it's going to be something that's going to be informing the future of the city. The, the people's voices need to be the loudest. So, um, yeah, there will be links on that if people want to contribute in any way, shape, or form. If, if they want to give a dollar a month, that would be phenomenal um, in any of those ways. And then um, to be very perfectly honest, uh, I don't trust any conversation that doesn't have a debate. So um, we will be posting more and more on social media. We'll be putting out a newsletter and all those things. And that is not meant to be the letter of the law. It's more supposed to be food for thought and questions and opportunities to engage. So we're hoping that people will engage in that way too and give us like their doubts, shout outs, hoorays, and you sucks. That's fine. But like, we're trying to build something. <laughs> when it comes to unleashing the potential of Denver's nighttime economy, we expect there will be more shout-outs and hoorays than doubts and you sucks. This has been Season 2, Episode 27 of 24 Minutes from 24 Hour Nation. Visit us online at 24hournation.com and follow us on social media at 24 Hour Nation. My name is Randall White. <laughs>